Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In the latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event from Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival 2019 for your listening pleasure. Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. Hello and welcome. I'm Elaine Bedell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Southbank Centre and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening for this very special event with Hillary Rodham Clinton. It's actually, it's actually Hillary's second appearance on this stage. She was here three years ago, so we're delighted to have her back. She's here this time with her daughter, Chelsea Clinton, um, and they're in conversation with Mary Beard about their book, The Book of Gutsy Women. This book tells the story of over a hundred women who have reached the top of their field in various elements of society, sports, medicine, politics, education, and who have campaigned tirelessly for women's rights across the world. The photograph is quite familiar. It's four women manning a fire hose in 1941 in Pearl Harbor. But for 70 years, this photograph was reproduced with no one knowing who these women were or even what their names were. Until, guess what? A woman decided that she would dig into the archives, find out who they are, and give them their names. So they are part of this book. Their story has been reclaimed, as have many, many other women whose stories perhaps have not been so familiar over the years. And that includes our host tonight, Mary Beard. She is also in this book as a gutsy woman. Mary, Mary is, of course, a well-known academic and television presenter. She's the professor of classics at Newnham College. She's also the author of several books, including Women and Power, a manifesto. And Hillary Rodham Clinton in the chapter on Mary Beard tells the story of how Mary took on Boris Johnson, our current Prime Minister, in a debate for charity, and the debate was Greece versus Rome. And Mary said, going into that debate, that she knew the only chance of success for her was to be fantastically well-prepared. And as Hillary says, I think that rings with and resonates with women everywhere. Preparation, perhaps not Boris Johnson's strongest point, but. Anyway, she succeeded and she won. Mary Beard also says in the conclusion of her manifesto, Women and Power, that if it's true that women are perceived not to be fully integrated into the structures of power, then it's power that needs to be redefined, not women. And I think we can all sign up to that. So please, without any further ado, welcome three very gutsy women onto this stage, Mary Beard, Chelsea Clinton, and Hilary Rodham Clinton. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Goodness gracious, I don't know you well enough probably to love you back, but maybe by the end of the night. 
Well, thank you very much, everybody. I, I have to say it's a fantastic pleasure. What I want to do in order to kind of really kick off is to start with uh, the book itself. Why on earth did you do it? And who's it for? And why did you do it together? So why did we write this book? You know, part of it was we've been talking about women who inspire us and motivate us ever since Chelsea was a little girl. And when I was a little girl, my mother did the same, in part to give me role models and examples of women standing up for themselves, of taking on difficult problems, overcoming all sorts of obstacles. In the time in which we're living, I think we need to be reminded of courage and resilience and gutsiness. Uh, because there are stories in this book really for everybody uh, who gets discouraged or gets knocked down and you need to figure out how to get yourself going again. Uh, and it is for both of us um, a way of not only remembering and honoring women from the past as well as the present, uh, but inspiring people to say, okay, who are the gutsy women in my life? You know, we're in a bit of a struggle going on right now in, in our country, and I, I think also yours and many other places. Um, and uh, lifting up women and women's voices um, and making it clear that girly swat is actually a compliment um, would, be, uh, would, would, would be a good way to react to what we see happening around us. You asked who did we write this book for, and something that was really important um, to both of us was that this book would be for uh, women and men, um, particularly for young women and young men, because we want um, men and boys to draw inspiration and gutsiness from these extraordinary women that we write about. And um, I will say, I did have to disappoint my children. Admittedly, they're quite small. They're five, three, and three months. But my five-year-old daughter asked if we had included Wonder Woman. And I said no, which was very, very disappointing to her. Um, but it does mean a great deal to me that if you asked my son who his favorite superhero was, he would say Wonder Woman too. And so I want, um, as they kind of move out of hopefully never the realm of imagination, but sort of move out of thinking kind of superheroes have to always wear capes, as the saying goes, to recognizing that so many don't, that these gutsy women will be as not only just inspiring, but also galvanizing to my sons as, as to my daughter. Can I ask you if it was a trouble-free collaboration? I mean, I, I sort of gleaned from reading the book very carefully that, that one of the authors writes longhand now, I don't think I'd ever collaborate Wait, with someone who wrote longhand. Do you, Mary, do you write longhand? Do I write longhand? Not to put you on the spot. No, I don't write oh, longhand. Okay. No, girly swats don't write longhand anymore. <laughs> oh, I rest my case. So, um, you know, Mary, I knew that my mom wrote longhand. So I, I take responsibility for the subsequent frustration because I did know that. I just hadn't understood what that would mean for our collaboration until I got, you know, kind of... Uh, she would take a picture of a page and then send the picture as an attachment, like, you know, Harriet Tubman, page one. And, 
And she did, to give her credit, at some point figure out how to consolidate all of the photos into one email. So it wasn't just sort of one attachment for one email, which is what it was initially. Um, so it did take a while for us to work that out, but we, but we did. We, we figured out how to work together. I'm going to come to some other bits of collaboration uh, later, but, but just to kind of keep with a flavor of the book. And I think what's great fun about it is that as you go through, you go from people that you have heard of or you think you know, or you know, there's Florence Nightingale sitting there. I think, oh, right, Florence. Um, and then you come to people that you've, that are not even names. And so it's, it's wonderfully kind of surprising like that. And you, I found that I, I kind of got very soft spots um, for some very uh, surprising women. I mean, I th and I think the one that, and I was looking at it again today that really appealed to me, and I'd love to know, you know how she got in for you, um, was Juliet Gordon-Law, who was partly the founder of the UK Girl Guides and partly, uh, and probably more importantly, the founder of the US Girl Scouts. Now, I mean, I, I should confess at this point that I have a very, very ropey record as a girl guide. <laughs> so I was very, very bad at it. Um, so I didn't, I thought, oh, I almost skipped her. And then I became really interested in this woman who seems to have started um, a kind of whole series of generations. Well, that's what really caught my attention. I, I was what we called a Girl Scout, a brownie first, then a Girl Scout. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was quite remarkable that at a time when there weren't very many women creating big organizations. Uh, there she was, and in part because of her experience uh, here in England. And she was determined uh, to start this Girl Scout movement. Uh, and she didn't see it just as a nice thing for girls to do when they were in elementary school. She really thought of it as a way to mobilize girls and women on behalf of everything from uh, different charities to uh, standing up for peace. I mean, she, she, today she would be considered probably a CEO of a large company or maybe a, a high-ranking public official elected uh, in uh, uh, either the state or our, our nation. So she was somebody who was ahead of her time, but very much of it. Uh, she, and she was a great uh, a contour. I mean, you know, she would raise this, all this money for the uh, burgeoning organization uh, that somebody, that people had never heard of, and she was able to get it, get it up and going. So I thought that if you're looking for women in the 19th century who are creating something that lasted, um, she was a really great example of that. And she's a great example of someone who you look at their photograph at the beginning of the, of the little article about her, and you think, ooh, you know, she looks a bit dour. Yes. Um, she looks a bit, you know, I, I, I will dare to use the word frump, is yes. what you think. Yes. And then you read about her, and you see what a feisty, interesting, um, you know, really fun woman that she was. Yeah. Well, and, and there now have been millions and millions and millions of Brownies and Girl Scouts. <laughs> So just something that she created more than 100 years ago that has had such an enduring legacy uh, and you know, at least kind of what the Girl Scouts assert, and no one's ever disputed this, is that 
more than half of the women in Congress now um, serving in the U.S. Congress were brownies or Girl Scouts, which I think is, yeah, woo, was really remarkable. Um, and, and I love that the leader of the Girl Scouts now, Silvia Chevero, is an engineer and has really brought kind of the 21st century to the Girl Scouts. So now you can get badges in artificial intelligence as well as for selling the most cookies, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> In my case, it was making a pot of tea, which I didn't do very well. But I, <laughs> I mean, the, the stories that I think I found most affecting for me were several stories that you told about um, kids, black, little black girls, getting caught up in issues about segregation and desegregation of education. And you have a, in the book a, a picture I think many of us will have seen of little Ruby Bridges Hall. Um, she must be about five, very smartly dressed, very poised, uh, at a school entrance, and there's three vast white blokes next to her. And what I hadn't realized until I read what you said is that uh, what was happening around that picture. And it, I've always seen it as a picture of a, of a rather um, right on, kid. Um, what I didn't know is that she was surrounded by white supremacist uh, demonstrations and people were holding up signs as that kid went into school saying things like, all I want for Christmas is a clean white school. And it suddenly made me think about that, that photograph all over again. And there were stories after stories of, uh, of children getting caught up in, in those issues of, of integration and non-integration in the American South. Well, and, and you know, it, it, we, we feature several of them. Obviously, uh, Ruby Bridges Hall, uh, who you just described, she was in New Orleans because her parents had moved from out in the country into the city so that she could get a better education. And then when the schools were ordered uh, by the Supreme Court to desegregate, uh, it was a very difficult uh, time uh, because her parents were determined that she was going to take advantage of what they thought of as better education. Not only the, the protests and, and the signs and the threats, but you know, her father lost his job. And it was, it was a big sacrifice for them uh, not only to try to give their daughter a better chance, but literally to walk right into the breach uh, on behalf of all the kids that she was representing. And for someone with a, a gloomy cast of mind about this, there are kind of mirror images and repetitions of the kind of problems these girls or women are facing hundreds of years apart. And I was reading your uh, entry on Helen Keller, the, the deaf-blind woman who most extraordinarily um, was you know, taught to communicate and to become a really major figure in um, disability rights, as we'd now call it, but also in politics more general. But you point out that when Keller was talking about disability, everybody kind of said, oh, you know, there, there, you know, that's, a, that's perfectly okay, you know, what a great, what a great little heroine she is. As soon as she started talking politics, 
They started to say, who's feeding her this stuff? She's just a mouthpiece for someone else. And then I thought, this is exactly what they say about Greta Thunberg. Yes. Exactly the same. Isn't that depressing? <laughs> well, it's a, it is a little bit, uh, uh, you know, daunting to think that a lot of these battles have to be fought over and over again. and over again. And uh, Helen Keller is a, is a great example of, obviously, a, a, an extraordinary, heroic uh, individual who, with the help of her teacher, who should not be uh, forgotten, Ann Sullivan, learned to communicate. And she went through Radcliffe College. She got a, got a degree from Radcliffe. She then, uh, as Mary said, she began to campaign not just on behalf of uh, work to help uh, people with disabilities, but she began speaking out about a lot of other political issues. Uh, as a side note to this, uh, I mentioned in the book that last year the State Board of Education in Texas made the decision uh, to eliminate Helen Keller and me from the Texas textbooks. Um, and I was really upset about Helen Keller. A terrible error, you know, yes. Whatever. Um, eventually they changed their minds, but I thought it was also a bit of that echo. You know, how much, if, okay, we could, can we stop after she learns to communicate? Because yeah. Anne is, you know, making, uh, you know, using her fingers to communicate sounds and, and words to her, you know, pouring the water and then trying to sign that. Okay, can we stop there and not talk about how she helped to form the American Civil Liberties Union and she traveled around the world on behalf of peace and all the rest of it. Uh, and then you mentioned Greta and, you know, Chelsea and I put her in the book, um, you know, a year, gosh, nearly a year ago. Um, because we had read about her lonely, solitary climate strike in front of the Swedish parliament, and we were so moved by it. And then, of course, the book you know, goes to get to print and all the rest of it, and she then sails across the ocean and speaks to the UN. Uh, and it's been fascinating to watch how scared a lot of grown-up, you know, male leaders are of this young 16-year-old girl uh, who speaks up about the threat of climate change. I also think that she's a young woman, so the idea that she'd be standing up and speaking out as effectively as she has just rattles, yeah. uh, you know, all of the paradigms that people still live with, you know, this yeah. almost... Uh, ancient DNA imprinting about this is what women are supposed yeah. to do and, and this is what they're supposed to look like and they're not supposed to be um, so pushy and aggressive and speaking yeah. out. Uh, and yeah. it is, you know, it's, it's maddening to think how much that still operates. I mean, you could probably take some of the people who have been uh, so critical of her uh, on, you know, in social media and in other settings, you know, attach them to a lie detector and say, well, don't you think that's a bit sexist? And they'd say, of course not, of course not. Uh, and they might even pass because they are so enthralled uh, to the idea that this is, that what, whatever she's saying, before we even get to the merits of it, has to be discredited because she should not be saying she's it. Not, she it's should, like what yeah. happened to Malala, also yeah. in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so if you yeah. look at yeah. it, 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 it yeah. reminiscent yes. of all these other stories, yeah. you know, 
Malala yes. wanted to go to school. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they yes. shot her in the head for yeah. it. And it's, it, when these women, or young girls effectively, are, are speaking up as victims, that's okay. You know, you're allowed to speak as a victim, and that's where the Helen Keller story, yes. I think, is, is important. You know, if Greta was to, you know, when she talks about Asperger's, that's much less threatening than when she talks about climate change. Yes. But it's when they actually say, no, I'm not just going to be a victim, I'm going to tell you something. Yes, that's 100% right. I mean, mm -hmm. It, there, there are these roles assigned to women. I don't know, they come from on high, and one is the victim role. Yeah. And somehow you can be enraged and, and passionate and outspoken and, and just yeah. so ferocious as a victim. Yeah. It's okay if yeah. you're a victim. Who wants to live as a victim? Yeah. And, and, and so the role, if you try to get out of that yeah. role, yeah. they're going to be trying to push you back into it. And that's what happens in the ancient world. There's quite a lot of speeches, at least ventriloquized for women. They're all either just after they've been raped or before they're going to die. I mean, you know, it's as victim. It's not speaking out. It's, it's, a, a, it's a plaint. I'm not going to be a bit of a devil's advocate, all right? Uh, and I, let me say to start with, I, I am really all for gutsiness. And I think, you know, the basic motto of don't let the buggers get you down and stand up to the guys is a really good one, right? Uh, I, and I think we need to re-say that. I tweeted something like that a few weeks ago, and I was told in a kind of a mini storm that I was victim blaming. If you have to stand up to someone, that implies it's your fault that you've been. And I thought, God, get real, everybody, get real. Um, so I'm, you know, deep down, I'm really with gutsiness. I, I did sometimes wonder if there wasn't something a little kind of irremediably gutsy about some of your women or about some of the ways you wanted to present them. Um, I wondered whether beneath the surface of most of these gutsy women, you know, they were actually sometimes going to bed at night thinking, I don't bloody want to do this anymore. I've had enough of standing up to the buggers. You know, uh, I don't want to be the first woman in space. You know, I want to have a bit of free time and occasionally be allowed to cry, right? And, you know, in, in kind of, in, I think, our communal admiration for gutsiness, maybe we've, we actually don't give enough space to some people who, who don't think that they can spend their whole life being resilient? No, I, th I, I think that's a more than fair point. And we did try in the book to talk about these women in a, in a more human way rather than just, yeah, you, know, yeah. here's, you know, she was born yes. here, she did that, she died then. Um, and, and just sort of take it for granted that people would read between the lines. So we tried to, you know, mix the admiration that we had for their gutsiness with a real appreciation for how hard it is. And look, there, there are so many gutsy women. Everybody in this audience knows women who are gutsy. Uh, and you yourselves are. Uh, and it isn't easy. 
And, and there's all kinds of reasons why you might just want to say, I don't want to get out of bed today. I mean, enough. I'm done with this. Sold the space. And, and right. as you say at the end of, you know, Women in Power, a manifesto, I mean, it's the structures of power that should change. I mean, why are they so uh, set on, on making it difficult for not only women, but people of color and others to get into the room where it happens. And so we are fully aware of that. I've lived that, I understand that. But at the same time, I think it's really important to point out that everybody gets knocked down, everybody gets disappointed and discouraged in whatever you're doing in life. And the real question is, are you gonna get back up and go at it again? And maybe you stay down for a while, kind of summoning the energy and, and healing yourself to get back up and go. I mean, earlier today we were talking uh, about Abby Wambach, who's in the book. She is the single, as you would say, footballer, uh, we would say soccer, um, she is the single footballer with the most goals scored, man or woman, in recorded history. And she had a, <clears throat> she had a real identity crisis. You know, she started drinking, she got arrested for driving while drinking, and she had to make a decision. Okay, I'm no longer a, uh, uh, a World Cup uh, champion. My career is behind me. What do I do for an encore? What, what's next yeah. for me? Yeah. And she really had to make a tough call on herself and get back up. And uh, so we look at these women uh, not in isolation because they are all parts of... Uh, families, communities, uh, whatever endeavor they're part of, and they also struggle. I mean, there is nothing easy about it. And, you know, when I first met you, Mary, it was at St. Andrews. We were getting honorary degrees, and I learned about a lot of the abuse you took online. And you've been brilliant in how you've handled it and how you've reached out to even those who are insulting and attacking you. But it's not easy. Hey, no. It is not easy. Uh, want to now think a bit more about the future, a bit more generally. Uh, I was very struck a few weeks ago when Margaret Atwood said um, that the trouble about being a female politician uh, was that you both had to have policies and you had to have a hairstyle. And I thought, and I thought, still, and, and I've actually been, I'm sorry Chelsea, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I've been reading about reports of your stuff that you do and almost always it'll go on to say and she was wearing um you know trainers and you and um you know f flat tops or you know and black jeans and you think uh, and no makeup right and you think the so horror horror so so effing what you know you think <laughs> but Do, what is your prediction? And do you think that things are going to get worse before they get better again? Oh. Well, I think they certainly have gotten worse, <laughs> um, at least in our country. Uh, you know, and I, I was thinking about this earlier, Mary, not kind of with relation to me, but just kind of with relation to the ways in which and of the women who are now running for president are being covered. And I don't think I've ever 
read an article that mentions like what color tie Vice President Biden is wearing or if Senator Sanders is wearing a tie or if Senator Booker is wearing a blue jacket or not a sport coat, I don't know. And yet every article I read about Senator Warren or yes. Senator yeah. Klobuchar or yeah. Senator Harris is, you know, mentions her pearls or she isn't wearing pearls today. What does that mean? She decided to wear a skirt today. She wore jeans yesterday. What does that mean? Like, ooh, Senator Warren, she's wearing red more. Like, what should we, like, take from that? She decided she wanted to wear red. It's a nice fall color. I mean, I don't know. Um, Nothing else had come back from the dry cleaners. Like, there's probably nothing, like, in the crystal ball here. But it is supremely frustrating, and particularly because... You know, I remember when my mom ran for the Senate uh, in, in 2000 and she just started wearing like dark pantsuits to try to remove that paragraph from the article, basically, so that that space would be filled with the substance of what and why she was doing what she was doing. Um, and she kind of forced kind of more coverage on kind of what she was talking about by just removing the variable. Um, And it's just so sad to me that that seems kind of in hindsight so painfully necessary because of what I'm reading now, you know, almost 20 years later. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to figure out how we're going to break out of this. Um, I do love the fact that in uh, the United States, we currently have more than one woman running for president. So that gives you um, a different um, perspective. and it is, um, as Chelsea was saying, uh, something I wrote about in my last book, What Happened, in a chapter called Women in Politics, uh, because there does seem still to be such a high standard for any woman, you know, putting her nose above the parapet. I, I remember uh, when, you know, I'd read articles about Theresa May, and, you know, she's wearing kitten heels, and what were kitten heels, and why is she wearing kitten heels, or whatever they were talking about. Um, now, it is true that I did try to you know, basically uh, remove that as an issue because I thought, okay, if I wear a pantsuit and it pretty much looks the same every day, then maybe they won't uh, talk about it. Well, they move on to something else. And of course, hair is always the most important uh, attribute. And, and we have a profile of Ann Richards, the wonderful feisty uh, governor of Texas. And Ann Richards... Uh, who is one of my great, you know, political uh, icons, Um, she did once say to me, she said, you know, Hillary, uh, one of the rules of politics for a woman is get a hairstyle and stick to it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think um, if we moved outside the West, we would find more cause for optimism or less? Well, I think it, I, I'm, per, I'm personally optimistic, and all these women are optimistic. I mean, part of going back to your earlier question, in order to get back up and keep going, you have to be optimistic to keep working on, you know, whatever the cause might be, or, you know, running for office or breaking athletic records. You've got to be optimistic. Um, so I remain optimistic, but I think it's going to take a lot of work. It's not going to happen just because we hope it is or because we think, you know, there's some big forces out there that uh, are moving the historic wheel forward. Because I do think there's a reaction to a lot of the uh, success of women and the roles of women right now. And I think social media has lit that up in a very destructive and toxic way. So people may have thought a lot of things uh, in the past, but 
Now it's amplified and it is, you know, viral and the algorithms, you know, if you, if you, you know, Google my name or your name, Mary, you know, a lot of the stuff will come up that is like just so bizarre. Uh, because the algorithms reward controversy and conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. So we've got a couple of new problems to deal with in this great sweep of history. And one of them is what technology, with all of its uh, advantages, is doing to how we think of ourselves, how children are raised, and how we have a discourse in a democratic uh, society. And that's going to take some real careful uh, thought. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the South Bank Centre Books Podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. <laughs>